The views and opinions expressed by contributors on the Spoon River Gothic podcast are their own and do not necessarily reflect the position of the host. Material heard on the Spoon River Gothic podcast is intended for adult listeners. This podcast deals with mature topics that may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. Chapter 25, A Prodigal Hand The criminal record of Fulton County, as the dark contents of this chapter will clearly show, brings her to the forerank in this particular, as she stands in every noble one. Since the day wicked Cain slew his brother Abel in the very morning of the world's history, the earth has been bathed in human blood shed by jealous, angry, or infuriated human brothers. History of Fulton County, published by C.C. Chapman and Company, 1879. The chronicle goes on to state, In Fulton County it seems that life has been held as of little value by many of our people, which have taken the life of their fellow creatures. The knife, pistol, gun, poison, and other weapons have been used with the prodigal hand. For the most trivial offense, the knife has been plunged into the vitals of the victim, the fatal bullet sent to his heart, or the deadly lotion dealt out. By the observant, it will be noticed as a significant fact that in the following list of murders committed, the offense to cause the deadly act to have been done has been generally slight. Seldom justifiable, it seems to an impartial observer, yet it will be noticed that the punishment meted out to the criminal has invariably been light. Not one in the list of murders has been punished with the death penalty. We are not claiming that in any particular case that such should have been done, but wish to record the facts impartially as we find them. As above mentioned, it would seem from this state of public sentiment that life is looked upon as not very sacred or valued by many persons of this county. To illustrate further the slight value placed upon the life by some, aside from the terrible facts recorded below, we will refer to a trial once brought before a justice of the peace of Liverpool Township. Two neighbor women were brought to trial and prosecuted for an attempt upon the life of another neighbor woman. While making soap in the open air, one of these had contracted with the other for a very small sum of money, only a few dollars, to kill the third woman referred to. The committal of the dark deed was thoroughly discussed, and plans were laid out to carry it into execution. The woman, for a few dollars, who had bargained to take the life of one of her neighbors, intended to commit the deed with a garden hoe. We do not wish to reflect upon the high moral standing of the citizens of Fulton County in general. Still, as faithful historians, we must impartially record things as they exist. We give every case where a person was indicted and tried for murder. For example, in 1840, there was a house raising at John Morris's near Troy Mills. Among those present was James Ogden. While at dinner, Ogden thought he was insulted by another party. And being of an irritable temperament, he became very cross, angry, abusive, and profane. George Morris, a young man, became incensed at Ogden's abusive manners and made his feelings known. The two soon got into a fight. Ogden kicked Morris very hard during the tussle. When parted, Morris remarked that he was severely hurt. He was taken into the house and laid upon a bed, no one supposing that he was seriously injured. But within 15 minutes, he died. After some time elapsed, Ogden gave himself up to Sheriff Lamaster, was tried, found guilty, 
and sentenced to the penitentiary for one year. He served a portion of his time and was pardoned by Governor Carlin. We are told that his treatment while at the penitentiary was very mild, even permitted to drive a team through the streets of Alton and so general outside work. About noon one day in the summer of 1847 or 48, Norman Bemis was married in Liverpool. In the evening of that day, Namaya Northrup, a resident of the north side of Liverpool Island, got to carousing around with woman's clothes on and endeavoring to be a whole chivalry of himself. He was not known to have any particular charge against either Bemis or his new wife, but when it was about dusk, he met Bemis on the common, passed a few words with him, and started off with a gun on his shoulder, waving it up and down. At the distance of a few rods, walking with his back still turned toward Bemis, Northrop fired off the gun, and lo, the shot struck Bridegroom on the neck and lower part of his face, shattering his lower jaw to pieces and killing him instantly. Northrop was arrested and bound over to the court under a moderate penalty, but he finally left the county and has never since been heard of. It is related that only half hour before the death of Mr. Bemis, the bride was dozing in a rocking chair and had a very distinct dream of seeing her husband murdered. Jackson Louderback, Daniel Louderback, and John Curlis was arrested on the 6th of March, 1849, for the murder of Abraham Littlejohn of Woodland Township. The history of the case, as we have been informed, is as follows. Sometime previous to the murder, two brothers by the name of Baldwin came into the neighborhood preaching a new religion. The former fishermen came from Havana. Their education was limited, but what they lacked in knowledge they made up in zeal and earnestness, and consequently found many converts to their views. Among them were many of the best and most respected people of that portion of the county. In derision, their followers were called Baldwinites, but Union Baptist was the name they claimed. They were infatuated with their new religion and held meetings very often. It was at one of these meetings that Little John lost his life. It was held at a schoolhouse or church, and he was appointed to keep order. It seems that the Louderbacks and others came to this meeting expressly to create a disturbance. At any rate, they did so, and while Little John was putting one of the number out of the house, Jackson Louderback reached in from without and cut him in the abdomen with a knife. From the wound made, he soon died. Jackson made his escape and has never been captured. Daniel and John Curlis were arrested and liberated on bail. Daniel's case was postponed from time to time until the November term of 1851 when he came to trial. The case was a sharply contested one. He was acquitted, and the other cases were stricken from the docket. Nancy Wilcoxon, a woman of questionable character, was arrested on the 17th of March, 1852, for the killing of William Wetson. She went from her home in Liverpool Township to Liverpool on the day of the night of the murder and purchased a knife for the avowed purpose of killing Weston. He was at her house, and it is said he bore but a little better reputation than the woman. That night she killed him. She was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to the penitentiary for six years. She was pardoned. The case of Rebecca Dye was brought from McDonough County on a change of venue, but was the most exciting trial ever held in Fulton County. It lasted nine days. The courtroom was crowded at every session, with many ladies in constant attendance. On the evening of the 27th, on May 1854, Miss Dye killed her husband, James Dye, as it was alleged. David B. Burress was arrested as an accessory to the crime, but broke jail before trial. Miss Dye was tried in 1855. Some 80 or 90 witnesses were examined. The case was given to the jury after able arguments on both sides. 
He remained out for 15 hours, brought in a guilty verdict, and fixed the punishment at confinement in the penitentiary for five years. She was pardoned long before the expiration of her term, returned to Macomb, and died in 1874. In November 1857, William Tate was arrested for the murder of Hamilton Brown at Astoria. One night while passing along the street, Brown was struck upon the head with a stone or a piece of iron. From the wound inflicted, he died. Tate was supposed to have thrown the stone and he was tried and acquitted. A fracas occurred in the little village of Slabtown Wednesday the 27th of April 1859, in which Daniel Richardson was instantly killed and John O. Hardy severely wounded. There had been a lawsuit that day in which Richardson was interested, and it had not terminated to please him. And it is said, being somewhat intoxicated, Richardson became quarrelsome. He attacked, as it was claimed, John O. Hardy, an elder gentleman, was struck two or three times when young Hardy approached, and as he attempted to draw a pistol, Richardson threw a stone, which hit the weapon, causing it to discharge its contents into the young man's thigh. The old man drew a knife and stabbed Richardson in the heart, killing him instantly. The two Hardys were brought to trial in June of 1859 on the charge of murder. From 96 men, a jury was chosen, and the case was given into their hands. They rendered a verdict of not guilty. A young man by the name of Vaughn was murdered in Vermont Tuesday the 15th of July, 1860, by Isaac Harris, another young man. The weapon used was a club. The young man had always been warm friends. They were traveling a road near Vermont, and Vaughn became so helpless from excessive drinking that he fell upon the ground and could not get up. Harris tried to arouse him by pounding him with a stick, but without success. He then took a fence stake and literally beat the prostrate man to death. Vaughn was taken home and died that same evening. There seemed to be no ill feeling between the two men. They were only drunk. Harris was tried, found not guilty of manslaughter, and sent to the penitentiary for 15 years. In November 1862, Bolin killed James Mari of Vermont. This occurred during the war, and it seemed the latter had charged the former with being a Missouri Jayhawker and thief. And after hearing the charges, Bolin went to Mahari for satisfaction when a collision ensued, resulting in Mahari being stabbed to death. Bolin was indicted on the 26th of February, 1863, and was tried and acquitted, the jury believing he committed the deed in self-defense. On February the 16th of January, 1863, at Apple's schoolhouse, four and a half miles east of Lewistown, Zachariah Shaw Jr. met his death by being stabbed with a bowie knife in the hands of George W. Potts. A spelling school had been in session at the schoolhouse, and immediately after its close, an affray occurred between several persons resulting in Shaw's death. Potts made his escape. The case was stricken from the docket. Eli Watkins, Abraham Pelham, Henry Schroeder, and Jackson Welch, who resided in Menard County, killed an innocent and inoffensive boy near Havana, Mason County, and were brought to Fulton County on a change of venue. They were taken a drove of cattle through the county and stopped at Havana and became intoxicated. On the road, they met their victim, a German boy of 12 or 15 years of age, ordered him off and shot him down without further provocation. They were all acquitted. Ira Cobb killed a Mr. Baker of Woodland Township in 1864. Both parties were respected and well-to-do citizens. 
However, they got into a fuss over the difference of only 15 cents in making a settlement with each other, and Cobb shot Baker with a pistol. The ball entered the head of the victim and proved fatal immediately. Cobb was arrested for the murder on the 29th of September, 1864. He took a change of venue to Peoria County, was tried, found guilty of manslaughter, and sentenced to 10 years. A new trial was granted, and by agreement, the case was returned to Fulton County. Here, he broke jail and was gone for four years. Shortly after his escape, he was captured in Indiana. Sheriff Wagner hurried forward to get his prisoner, but a year he arrived, Cobb had again escaped. This time he evaded authorities for about four years when Sheriff Wagner caught him in Kansas. As Cobb was returned, he was brought to trial, but the prosecution was compelled to beg for a continuance as every witness for the state had either died or left the county. He pleaded guilty, we believe, and was sent to the penitentiary for one year but was soon pardoned. In June 1865, the village of Marbletown was thrown into considerable excitement by the announcement of the murder of Daniel Lash. Lash was a farmhand at the time and in the employ of Herman Marble, Richardson, a cripple, kept what was familiarly known as a jug grocery, in other words, a saloon. Lash, a desperate fellow regarded as an outlaw, came to the saloon using threatening language toward Richardson and soon tried to strike him. Richardson, in the meantime, secured a hatchet and, when the opportunity presented, struck Lash a hard blow which proved fatal. Lash exclaimed, he has killed me, and after walking about 70 yards, he fell to the ground dead. Richardson was arrested for the murder, but the grand jury refused and he was set at liberty. Catherine Lewis, alias Catherine Todd, and Robert Todd were arrested on the 20th of April, 1865 for committing murder by poisoning. They were tried and found not guilty. The victim of a fracas which occurred in Bryant, Wesley Pittman, was killed by William A. Jones. He was arrested on the 21st of April, 1866, found guilty of manslaughter on the 18th of April, 1867, and sent to the penitentiary for two years. He killed Pittman with a rock. Sheriff Wagner took him to the state prison where he died. Oscar Craig shot and killed Thomas Brown in Otto, seemingly without provocation whatsoever. He was arrested for murder on the 25th of August, 1870 and was acquitted. Lemuel Purdy, Pitts Lawrence Purdy, and Samuel Nicholson were arrested on the 29th of August, 1871 for the murder of a Swede. The fatal affair occurred on the night of the 4th of July, 1871 at a saloon called Shoefly, one mile east of Lewistown. A majority of the crowd at this place that night was intoxicated. The Swede had just recently come to this country, and he is said to have been a quiet, inoffensive man. In the fracas that occurred, he was struck down with a club and died from the effects of the injuries he received. Nicholson was tried in 1873 and found not guilty, and Pitts L. Purdy was acquitted. Lemuel Purdy was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to five years. He was pardoned at the end of three. All of these parties were accounted as decent, respectable citizens. John Marion Chisney killed a Negro at Abington, Knox County in 1873. He was acquitted. William O'Dell was arrested for murder on the 1st of August, 1875. He was a constable and lived in Havana, Mason County. He levied upon a boat belonging to a man by the name of Patterson, who lived near Copperas Creek Dam. Patterson was a bad character and a desperate man, which fact was known to Odell. He attempted to retake the boat from Odell, 
In the attempt, Odell began shooting at him and fired four times, killing him instantly. Odell was tried in this county and acquitted. At about sundown on the 10th of July, 1876, Jonathan B. Berry shot and killed John J. Lacklear of Pleasant Township. Berry had married a widow named Maggie Schumann, and on the evening of the murder, Berry was whipping one of her boys. To help control him, she sent one of her sons, Willie Schumann, a boy of a dozen summers, to Mr. Lalicker's, who lived near for assistance. Mr. Lalicker hurried over according to the request, and as the two entered the yard, Berry warned Lalicker not to enter the house. Barry fired at him through a window, one of the shots proving fatal, killing Lalicker almost instantly. Barry was indicted, tried, found guilty, and sent to the penitentiary for 10 years. Mayall and Willis were both plasters by occupation and resided in Ipava. It appeared that Willem Collier had a job of plastering, which both parties wanted to do. Finally, Willis was awarded the work, which Mayall thought was obtained by defaming him as a workman. An altercation ensued between them. Willis had a hatchet in his hand and seemingly made some movement with it toward Mayall when the latter said, You're not going to hit me with that hatchet, are you? Willis threw the hatchet down, and they both walked toward the gate. Upon arriving at the gate, Mayall pulled out a knife and cut Willis from the wound of which he died. Mayall was tried in 1876 and acquitted. At Bernie Dot, about 5 o'clock p.m., Saturday the 19th of July, 1879, Dr. Sylvester O. Hall, the leading physician of the village, met his death at the hands of Stephen Joy, an old and respected citizen, phenomenally zealous in his religion. The facts as gleaned from the evidence at the coroner's inquest were about as follows. On the morning of the murder, Mr. Joy agreed with Dr. Hall that if he bought a pony offered for sale by Perry Jones, he would take the animal off his hands at $20 cash. The doctor accordingly made the trade, took the pony to Joy's store, and notified him that the animal was ready for him. Joy told him to hitch the animal and come in, which Hall did. Joy hesitated for a while and then backed squarely out of the trade. This greatly enraged the doctor, and some very bitter words passed, resulting in the doctor commencing a suit against Joy for damages. The trial was set for the 26th of July before Squire Shipton. All this occurred before noon. The parties discussed the question publicly during the day, and the very air seemed impregnated with bad blood. Between 4 and 5 o'clock in the afternoon, Hall sauntered around to Joy's store and sat down on the sidewalk at the southeast corner of the building, while Joy occupied a bench nearby. Hall sat several inches lower than Joy, not more than four feet apart. Some bitter words ensued when Hall called Joy a hard name. Joy had been whittling with a large pocket knife, and at this moment reversed the knife quickly, blade downward, and saying, This must be settled, struck a quick blow to Hall's bare neck, when a vast stream of blood spurted eight to ten feet away. Hall seized his neck as if to stay the blood and said, He's killed me. Within five minutes after the stab, he was dead. The wound severed the left corroded artery and juggler vein. Quite a large number of persons were sitting around the two men when the tragedy occurred, and the blow could have been easily stayed had there been any suspicion that one would even strike the other. But it was all done in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye. Stephen Joy was arrested for murder on the 21st of August, 1879, and his trial was postponed indefinitely. And on into the next century, 
It appears that life in Fulton County, for a slight few, failed to acquire much value even into the modern age. Trials and convictions remained, well, quite questionable and inconsistent. As Lloyd Eldon Miller was sentenced to death in 1956 in Hancock County, Illinois, for the murder of eight-year-old Janice Elizabeth May the previous year. Miller was exonerated and released after 11 years on the basis that his conviction had rested on perjury testimony and significant misrepresentation of physical evidence. On the 26th of November 1955, Janice May's body was found in an abandoned railroad car near her house in Canton. Two days later, the 29-year-old cab driver, Miller, was arrested for the crime. He was tried, convicted, and sentenced to death. The conviction rested primarily on a confession that the prosecutors persuaded the trial judge had voluntarily signed. Although Miller denied his guilt, he claimed that he had signed the confession only because Canton police threatened him with the death penalty if he refused. A second important factor in indicating Miller was the written statement by Betty Baldwin, a waitress who had met him about five weeks before and who became a special friend of his. She claimed that she had had a conversation with Miller in which he allegedly admitted he was responsible for Janice May's death. From the moment a police officer put thumb cuffs on Miller, his long journey had begun. For almost three days, from the 28th of November to the 1st of December, he had to endure extensive hours of interrogation. First, he was taken to the Sangamon County Jail, where he was interrogated by a Fulton County Sheriff's deputy and several authorities from Vermilion County. Then two polygraph operators transported him to the Illinois Bureau of Criminal Identification and Investigation in the state's armory in Springfield. One lie detector test after another followed by endless questioning all of which were accompanied by threats, promises, and violence, leading Miller to finally sign the confession. However, the confession was written by one of those officials. Miller did not read it, nor was it read to him before he had signed it. Moreover, during the trial, Miller's version of the interrogation period was completely different from the police officer's versions, which also differed from one another. Even though the trial court did not focus on how much the officials' versions varied from one to another, about the dates, times, places, and people interrogating Miller, this would later support the argument that these officials' testimonies were filled with lies. I might add that the trial court in Hancock County, same venue as Donald Bull, convicted Miller in November 1956 and sentenced him to death. Until the end of 1963, Miller's attorneys battled in the state and federal courts to save him, but were never able to prove that he was wrongfully convicted. Ten execution dates were set. On four occasions, the Supreme Court of the United States denied review. Nonetheless, in 1963, significant facts were unearthed that undermined the conviction. A primary piece of evidence used to find Miller guilty of Janice May's murder was a pair of shorts, which the prosecution contended were bloodstained and had been discarded by Miller after the murder. A chemist for the Illinois Crime Laboratory testified at Miller's trial in 1956 that the shorts had type A blood on them, the same type as the victim's. However, at a Hebus Corpus hearing in the Federal District Court in 1963, a microanalyst testified that the reddish-brown stains on the shorts were not blood but paint. It was determined that the counsel for the prosecution had not only known at the time of the trial that the shorts were stained with paint, but had also faked the most crucial physical evidence in Miller's case. Miller's landlady and her daughter also confirmed that Miller was at home napping at the time of the crime 
Subsequently, Betty Baldwin also admitted that she had lied in her witness testimony for the trial court. In February 1967, the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Miller's conviction, stating that the prosecution deliberately misrepresented the truth. Miller was released from prison shortly thereafter in March 1967. The charges against Miller were dismissed by a federal court in September 1971. Then there is the infamous case of Faye Raleigh of Summon, Illinois. Faye Raleigh, Township Supervisor for Woodland Township, serving on the Fulton County Board of Supervisors. He was also a wealthy farmer and landowner, which made him very well known in his neighborhood to the young and old alike. Raleigh was said to always assist those in need of a helping hand, and was known for being lenient with his rental property and transactions. But he was also reasonably known for his womanizing techniques. This is what made Sheriff Ball feel that Faye Raleigh had been done in by unknown persons. And research showed that all Raleigh's accounts and holdings were intact when Raleigh went missing. And if he had any enemies, they weren't talking either. And it was proven that Faye Raleigh did, in fact, have some enemies. It ended with Raleigh's eyeglasses lying on the floor near his chair and a floor lamp still on. His pants also lie on the floor near the chair, and Raleigh was nowhere to be seen. His 1953 green Cadillac was also not on the land. Upon further investigation, facts were brought about by Raleigh being seen in the early evening in Macomb, where there seems to have been an act of vandalism and maybe an attack on his very person, as persons unknown threw a bottle of acid at Raleigh and damaged his green Cadillac. A retaliation of sorts, perhaps. As all that is acutely true is that Raleigh seemed to have managed to vanish from the face of the earth. But how can a person, especially someone as well-known as Raleigh, seemingly vanish without a trace? The disappearance of Faye Raleigh had reached the status of folklore, and after the last sight of himself in his Cadillac on the 8th of November 1953, when a disused strip mine, in the process of being filled in across the road from Raleigh's place, ignited a storm of theories. Many believed that Raleigh had been murdered, put inside his Cadillac, and buried some 300 feet down in a coal pit. A long search for the former bank president included digging up the strip mine for his body before the prying eyes of the national magazines and thousands of curiosity seekers. At the unyielding search site, police became so desperate that they started listening to the advice of psychics. And after one dig and no findings, they gave up. But a local sheriff did not. He spent a lot of time and money drilling and digging into the old mine, but again, neither Raleigh nor the car was ever located. However, it is known that the last person to see Raleigh alive was Helen Wagner, who was keeping company with Raleigh. After being interviewed, Wagner recounted that in the fall of 1953, Raleigh wanted to marry her after she was divorced. He had been separated for several years and was hoping for it to be finalized soon. At first she liked the idea, but later changed her mind. She planned to remarry her ex-husband, Theodore Wagner, from whom she had been granted a divorce on the grounds of cruelty. Her divorce petition alleged he always had a gun and had threatened to shoot her dead. Two months earlier, when she revealed her intent to reconcile with her ex-husband, Raleigh seemed quite upset but not suicidal, she said, and they continued to see each other. On the 8th of November 1953, Raleigh left Wagner's apartment at 7.50pm to presumably go home, she thought, but she still expected to see him again. Raleigh, however, never showed up again. The final question she was asked was, do you know what happened to him? To which she responded in a nervous tone, I wouldn't know, I wouldn't know. Overall, Sheriff Bill concluded that Helen Wagner was more worried about her reputation and less concerned about Faye Raleigh's fate. 
Seven years passed, and it was 1960. This legal span of seven years had gone by with no sign of Faye Raleigh, whom a judge then declared legally dead. Two years after Raleigh had been declared dead, his son died in a suspicious and mysterious traffic accident. When the vehicle was inspected, it was determined that his brakes had been tampered with. Police had theorized that Raleigh's disappearance and his son's death were linked, but no arrests had ever been made in either case, and Raleigh is still missing today. In the end, wherever Faye Raleigh landed on this earth, his secrets went with him. Faye Raleigh wasn't the only one to magically disappear in Fulton County with no leads. In the summer of 1977, Craig Lloyd Graham was an energetic 18-year-old who mysteriously vanished into thin air. He was last seen alive around 12.30 a.m. on Sunday, the 12th of June, 1977. He had gone with a friend to a party held at Canton Lake, but left early around 11.30, claiming he was tired. Not too long later, two people driving home from the same party found his truck parked at an angle in the middle of a rural intersection. Craig was acting elated and agitated at the same time. He was standing outside of his vehicle, shouting, I am saved, I am saved, one moment, and then asking, what am I going to do, in a troubled voice the next. A bad trip, perhaps, but his friends thought he was just tired, so they encouraged him to sleep it off and went on their way. Yet around 7.30 a.m., when Graham's father got up to go do chores, Graham still wasn't home. Graham's father set out to the family farm northwest of Canton, Illinois, not thinking anything suspicious about his son not being home. However, he saw Craig's truck about a fourth of a mile down the road after leaving the house. The driver's side door was open wide, with the keys still in the ignition, which Craig's father thought was highly bizarre. Also quite suspicious was the finding of Craig's flip-flops, about 15 yards apart in the front yard, pointing back toward the truck as if he had kicked them off in a hurry. Craig was gone, nowhere to be found and no clues as to where or who was involved. Nearly one month later, on the 10th of July, 1977, Craig's body was found floating in a nearby strip mine pond that had already been intensely searched in the first few days and weeks following his disappearance. An autopsy report determined that there was no definite cause of death, but this is primarily due to an act by authorities, specifically future sheriff Dan Daly, who would hold office during the Donald Bull case. Daly had poured fuel on the body at the time of discovery to kill maggots, supposedly. A questionable act indeed, as this move disabled all ability to determine the cause of death from tissue samples. The sheriff at the time and a grand jury recommended that the case remain opened. And after several years, Craig Lloyd Graham's cause of death was still listed as unknown, with no new facts or evidence to help find out who committed this terrible crime, and it remains a mystery today. Though some rumors and theories store flourish in not-so-hushed whispers around town, the hypothesis is as follows. The party at the lake Graham had attended was thrown by a group of well-to-do youths, mostly children of successful doctors and other affluent pillars of the community. And soon after Graham's body was found, most if not all of these boys, these subjects and potential suspects, abruptly left town indefinitely, 
with adequate familial and financial support to stay abroad of the jurisdiction where the supposed foul play and subsequent investigation had occurred. Justin remains rather evident. Kimberly McClaskey was 17 years old and eight months pregnant from acquaintance rape by two boys whom she once considered friends, when on the afternoon of the 13th of July, 1983, McClaskey mentioned to her mother that she might catch a ride 15 miles to London Mills to visit her cousin and attend the town's festival. Elizabeth Murphy, Kim's mother, pleaded with her daughter to stay home for the summer heat would be hard on her pregnancy, and she had a doctor's appointment the following day. But Elizabeth had to leave for work, and so she couldn't keep an eye on her daughter and stop her from going against her wishes. Kimberly left, and when Elizabeth returned home, her youngest daughter relayed a message. Kim told me to tell you that she loves you and she'll be back tomorrow after her sonogram appointment. So, the next day, while awaiting anxiously for Kimberly to return home, Elizabeth reached her threshold and called the police. Upon questioning, she recalled that her daughter was in good spirits before she went missing, leading her to believe that Kimberly had not left on her own free will. And while investigating, police discovered that Kim was last seen walking along Route 116, but never arrived at her cousin's house and was never seen again by anyone. One month after her disappearance, in July of 1983, Kimberly's clothing and wallet were found approximately three miles from London Mills in the Spoon River. A decade later, Donald Leroy Evans claimed to be McClaskey's killer in 1993, but authorities were uncertain if Evans' statements were factual. Leroy told a reporter that McClaskey's remains could be found in Iowa, near the Quad Cities, but this also had never been proven. However, skeleton remains were discovered in Fulton County, and investigators initially believed that they were the remains of McClaskey, until a DNA test ruled out this theory. Convicted murderer William Reinbold was also believed to be connected to the case. Authorities stated that he had a history of attacking young brunette women like Kimberly. Reinbold, however, has never been charged with McClaskey's disappearance. New DNA testing was done on that skull that had been found in the woods in Fulton County a decade prior by a young boy, but had long believed to have been Native American. This testing proved that earlier DNA testing was false, and that the skull was, in fact, Kimberly McClaskey's. That said, a Fulton County coroner's jury eventually ruled her death a homicide. Police reports state that Kimberly was about 5 foot 1 inch and weighed around 98 pounds with brown hair and hazel eyes. She had a 4 inch burn scar on her upper left thigh, a mole on the left side of her neck, and both ears were pierced three times each. Kimberly Dawn McClaskey's case still remains unsolved to this day. On the 26th of December 1988, between 4 and 7 p.m., Mary Clark was attacked at Brightwash, the only laundromat in Farmington, Illinois. The trail of blood leading outside made it appear that Clark's body had been dragged and placed in a vehicle that had driven away. On the 27th, at approximately 1.45 a.m., police located her jacket alongside a road about three miles north of Farmington. Shortly thereafter, they found her bloody body about 800 feet from her jacket. The cause of death was determined to be brain injury caused by blunt trauma to the head. On the 28th, after hearing about the murder, Dixon Soltine, a neighbor of the defendant, told police that on the day of the murder, she was talking with the wife of William Reinbold of London Mills on the telephone when she heard Reinbold say he was going to the laundromat. And a short while later, just before dark, Soltine saw Reinbold get into his car and drive away. 
Another witness observed the defendant driving towards Farmington between 4.30 and 4.45 p.m. on the day of the murder. After hearing from the soul team, police talked to Reinbold, his wife, and his son. They told police inconsistent stories about what happened and where the defendant went on the night of the murder. Reinbold's wife told the police that she had a poor memory and that whatever her husband said, his activities would be correct because he had a better memory than she did. She then stated that, to her knowledge, her husband did not go to Farmington on the day of the murder. The defendant's son, Billy, told police that on the day of the murder, his father had gathered two baskets of laundry. Billy put the laundry in the back seat of the family car, and when his father left, he did not return until approximately 8.30 p.m. When he returned, Billy was told not to go downstairs. Because of that command, he did not see his father that evening. On the 30th of December, 1988, at approximately 1 p.m., police interviewed Rydbold again, this time at his place of work in Fort Madison, Iowa. The defendant denied going to Farmington on the day of the murder. He also told police that his car had Illinois license plates for about one month now. This statement was inconsistent with police observations that on the 27th of December, 1988, the defendant's car had no license plates on it at all. That same day, at 3.42 p.m., police observed the defendant attempting to clean the interior of his vehicle at a car wash in Fort Madison. Police then approached him, told him he was not under arrest, but indicated they wanted to talk to him about the murder. At that point, the defendant told police that Monday was a bad day. A subsequent search of the car revealed blood and hair in the trunk, consistent with the victim's. More blood consistent with that of the victim was found inside the vehicle on the driver's seat belt buckle. Police also searched a bus where the defendant sometimes stayed. There, a pry bar was located among the defendant's tools. The pry bar had bloodstains consistent with the blood of the victim. The forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy on the victim stated that the pry bar certainly could have caused her injuries. And following a jury trial, the defendant was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was subsequently sentenced to life imprisonment. On the 23rd of January, 1993, newspaper headlines screamed out across Fulton County, once again startling residents with yet another grisly proclamation. Canton Pear died before fire, death of mother and three-year-old being investigated as a homicide. The article went on to state, A local Canton woman and her three-year-old daughter were dead before their apartment was consumed last week in a fire that investigators on Friday determined an arson. But police would not comment on what caused the deaths of Donna Tompkins, 30, and Justine Tompkins. The pair were found on a sleeper sofa in their home at 365 South First Avenue after firefighters were called there on the 13th of January. It is being investigated as a homicide, but we are not saying it was a homicide, said Canton Police Sergeant David Ayers. Medical personnel said they could not find any trauma to the bodies. The only damage was from the fire, said Ayers, and that they were dead before the fire. A medical examiner used dental records to identify the pair, who were severely burned in the blaze. The cause of the fire has been determined to have been intentionally set and is now being investigated as an arson, Canton Police said in a prepared statement. We are conducting routine questioning, said Ayers, but we do not have any suspects as of yet. But one thing was certainly laid out in the article, loud and clear. In Fulton County, 
Life had yet, once again, been held as of little value, and a prodigal hand had taken the life of two of their fellow creatures, Donna Tompkins, 1962-1993, and Justine Tompkins, 1989-1993. since the day wicked Cain slew his brother Abel in the very morning of the world's history, the earth has been bathed in human blood shed by jealous, angry, infuriated human brothers. I'm Corey Zimmerman, and this is Spoon River Gothic. Spoon River Gothic is a production of Longbird Media in association with CZ Studio and Radio Verite. The show is produced by August Olson, editing, directing, and producing by Corey Zimmerman, audio mastering and engineering by E. Mastered. Research is done by Anne-Marie Cannon, Chelsea Mesa, and me, Jinra Illustrissimo. Spoon River Gothic is written and hosted by Corey Zimmerman. You can follow the show at czstudio.works and read the blog at spoonrivergothic.com. Show some love by leaving us a rating or a review on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for the next episode as we dive deeper into the Donald Bull case. Thank you for listening. This is Spoon River Gothic, narrative of a double homicide. <laughs>